Welcome to Everyday Church, everybody. It's good to be together as a family, with new babies especially. All right, so my brother-in-law, Alex, you can come on up, Alex. Um, Alex Lozada grew up in Staten Island, so he's a New Yorker, and brought uh, over the years, lured Wendy and I to come to the city. He's in Maryland now, works at a church down there. But Alex, once or twice a year, uh, comes and just joins the teaching team in one of the series that we're doing. And so he's bringing the message today, and I'm really encouraged um, for us to get to spend some time listening to Alex. So I'm going to hand it off to him and, uh, and get ready. Hold on. As Larry mentioned, uh, I grew up in New York. In fact, my parents and one sister uh, still live in Staten Island. That's where I was, uh, you know, last night, you know, drove up from Maryland and spent the night with them. For middle school, for myself, for middle school, uh, high school, and two years of college, I commuted from Staten Island to Manhattan. As you can tell from my uh, salt and pepper white hair, the time frame on that would be the late 70s, uh, early 80s, uh, you know, riding the subways. And uh, also, you can probably tell that my sight and my hearing, because I wear hearing aids, are diminished now. So even back then, they were probably getting a little bit worse. But riding the subway, taking the bus all those years, I could see and hear and even more I could smell and feel the difference. You could smell and feel. So if you've ever rode the one on a hot summer day when the air conditioning isn't working, I could feel and I could smell the difference. Because when I would commute back and forth, yeah, sometimes I rode the one, but every now and then, I think again, late 70s, early 80s, those trains were the ones in the oldest condition, but the BMT trains, the R and the N, they had the nice, shiny new trains, and the air conditioning would work on those more often than not, almost never on the one. And even just walking on the sidewalks. Even if my sight was going bad or I couldn't hear as well, like I said, I could smell. I could smell scent. The difference between the upper middle class midtown manager taking the train back down to the village and the homeless beggar there at the subway doors. I could feel because the sidewalks, the crumbling potholes up there in Spanish Harlem, not far from where Hunted College Junior High School was, that was really different than the, the terrazzo marble on the floor of the old style mall at the World Trade Center. So I could see, I could smell, I could feel the difference, the gap, the chasm between rich and poor here in New York City. And living in New York, you've seen it yourself. You have stories you could tell about how in this, my favorite city in the world, the center of God's universe, there is still that heart-rending contrast between the wealthy, the well-to-do, and those who have nothing. You trip over it, you stumble by it, you see it every day. We are continuing the uh, teaching series here at Every Day from the early Christian leader James. 
as he's writing to those first century Christians. Uh, Wendy began the series emphasizing James' teaching on focusing on wholeness and integrity and consistency. Not on perfection in some kind of quiz sense, some kind of religious orthodoxy, but living consistent, integrated, whole lives. And then Larry uh, continued, you know, last week talking about how James emphasizes themes. And we wouldn't need to necessarily go verse by verse, but look at the themes. And also, both of them talked about how James spends almost all of his book on the horizontal, the relationships between you and I, between us. Now, definitely, James believed in the vertical relationship, the idea of worship and of personal salvation, but his emphasis in his book was the horizontal, the relationships, the real relationships between people. So for a few moments, uh, we'll look at that. Uh, we'll read from a couple of uh, sections from the book of James. So that's what you have in the sheets uh, in front of you. So, so we'll be reading from that, and we will learn how James teaches us that we are supposed to view the wealthy compared to how we treat those who are the least of these. Uh, I was able to be here uh, last year, as, as Larry mentioned, I've come from time to time, and during that series it was on the parables and about using our imagination, our imagination to listen to the stories of Jesus, or in this case, the teachings of James, in the same way that those mid-first century people might have. So if we want to use our uh, 21st century imaginations to time travel, now this isn't Avengers Endgame, so it's not literal time travel with a CGI budget of hundreds of millions. Instead, you'll just use your own brains and imagination to time travel back to the mid-first century and imagine ourselves as followers of that controversial, challenging Jewish rabbi, Yeshua, Jesus, and we've followed his marvelous teaching and then his tragic torture, crucifixion by the religious and government authorities, and then that miraculous, never-happened-before resurrection from the dead. Now, we who are the Christ followers, we've been scattered by persecution from those same religious, and governmental authorities. We've been raised, because James is writing primarily to Jewish Christians, so people who were Jewish and then became Christ followers. And so in our Jewish tradition, our tradition has said that wealth is a sign of favor from God. So Abraham, who is one of the founders of the Jewish faith, and even today in the 21st century is revered by Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, Abraham was himself very wealthy with flocks and land and servants. And then King David, who is the most famous and revered of our historical figures, wealthy almost beyond our imagination. We look at the stories, the, the scrolls written about his son Solomon and all the wealth that he had. Even Moses, the great lawgiver, while he wandered during a part of his life, he was raised in the royal court of Pharaoh one of the most privileged men that could have existed at that time. So yes, Judaism talks, even in Proverbs, about how wealth and riches were a sign of favor from God. Now true, within Jewish teachings, there's also the prophets. The prophets 
were men of God who often wandered without a home of their own, speaking and teaching the truth. So there is a side current in Judaism that talks about being faithful even without monetary material blessing. But a lot of the, a lot of the most famous people in Jewish history are rich, are wealthy, and it was seen as a sign of God's favor. But you know, we don't even have to use our Avengers Endgame time travel imagination in our own day and time. For those of you old enough to go back to the 80s, 90s TV show, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, with its signature phrase from Robin Leach, champagne wishes and caviar dreams. Now, I didn't really get into that much myself, but then later on, its uh, spiritual successor, you could say, was Cribs on MTV. They even had a version on country music TV. So I guess I, I don't know that either of them would, would have been my taste, but you understand what I'm saying. You know, right now you can go on YouTube. Architectural Digest is just had something on like a $23 million uh, New York penthouse, and you know, like a tour, you know, vi video tour that you could take walking through. So in our own culture, we would seem to say that wealth, riches, are a sign of success. But this isn't just a slam on 21st century America. Uh, you could go across, across the ocean. Just last weekend, uh, my uncle, uh, a couple of weekends ago, my uncle Benji was showing my dad and I some YouTube videos of Manila and how the skyline there has changed so much than from when my parents and I moved in 1967, how different it is. It looks, it looks like Hong Kong. It, lo it looks like uh, Singapore, for those who, uh, one of my family's favorite movies, uh, Crazy Rich Asians, you know. So, so, so you remember how gleaming and beautiful Southeast Asian cities can look? So it's not just 21st century America or first century Judaism, throughout all of human history, just about every culture above subsistence level has worshiped, venerated, admired wealth and riches. With that in mind, just kind of, uh, I know you've already had a little bit of a discussion start, so don't feel obligated to do this if you don't want to, but, but if you have something in your mind, uh, Turn to, you know, maybe a neighbor or someone you don't know, someone sitting next to you, or if there's someone that you really, really want to tell this story to, you can tell the story. Tell, you know, just in a minute or two, uh, a story to someone uh, about a time when you went someplace rich, opulently wealthy, no doubt rich. How did you feel about going there? How did you feel afterwards? You know, maybe what was the, the circumstance of the invitation? Maybe you were invited uh, to a wedding, you know, a country club style wedding, or for a job interview, you had to go, you know, to one of those uh, skyscraper huge offices. So in just a moment, you know, turn to someone, you know, stand up, talk to someone and give, you know, share your story, not too long, a minute or two, and then hear back from their story. A time you went to some place, no doubt about it, Gold on all the sides, so rich, rich, filthy rich. Some a time you went there, what you felt, uh, and uh, if you don't have a story, that's okay. If you don't have a story to tell, that's fine. But a time you visited, uh, let me just, just uh, kind of to prime the pump, let me just share a quick example. Uh, my wife Heather is not here. She's on a soul care retreat, a woman's retreat. The first time 
I took her back. We were, we were just dating, weren't engaged yet. The first time I took her back to New York from Ohio, I admit, I kind of wanted to show off. So I got tickets to Les Mis. We dressed up. And then I got dinner at the old-fashioned, the old-style rainbow room. I mean, that's where my high school had had its prom. I didn't go to prom. I didn't, wasn't invited. Nobody invited me. Didn't go to prom. So, so kind of part of me was, was, was that, that sense of wanting to go someplace. I so we went to the Rainbow Room. Didn't like it. it. It was just too much. It was too much for us. We felt so out of place, so uncomfortable. It wasn't that the wait staff was mean or anything. Maybe they were. I mean, maybe they looked at us and said, oh, look at those hicks over there. Well, why did they even do it? I mean, because I had money. I had money to pay for it. But... But it was that kind of place, setting, where the wealth just dripped off the walls. So, if you have a story to tell like that, turn to someone, share just, you know, like I said, a little nugget of a story. A time you visited went someplace rich. Mostly, this is just so we can be thinking a little bit about how the readers, the first readers of James' letter might have responded as they thought about wealth in Roman and Greek and Jewish times and what their reaction might have been. So this is the uh, reading, and uh, you have that uh, in front of you. I'll be reading in the English for this time. It says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So James here is saying that there is favoritism, discrimination among God's people in the church. And in fact, this section here in James actually does connect 
with a section a little bit later on in James chapter 5. Now, you don't have this on your printed sheet, so I'll just read the translation that I have, New International Version, from James chapter 5. This is what James goes on to say. He says, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. So James, like his half-brother, Jesus, the Messiah, James, like Jesus, sometimes used shock and awe, sometimes was deliberately confrontational when he was writing. He wasn't doing that just for the sake of being shocking, but because we, that is, James' readers in the mid-first century church and churches throughout history, and even us today, are guilty of favoring some in the church above others. Too often, Christian actions have favored the rich. It takes money, lots and lots of money, to build the Cathedral of Notre Dame. And it will take millions, tens of millions of francs to rebuild it. I say this awkwardly. It takes money to pay pastors. So I earn my paycheck because of money that comes in. It takes money to do all of the commendable, charitable things that the church has done through the ages. So because it takes money for a part of God's mission, yes, the church sometimes has been like what James is describing that when someone comes who could be a donor, a giver, a high-capacity giver, I admit, I'm more likely to be friendly. Sometimes it's even culture, like I said, with our senses. The people who look nicer to us smell nicer to us. We're more likely to want to be around them. Who is rich? In the context, in the setting that James is writing, it's simply anyone that comes in to your circle that has more than you do, that you want to be like them. You want what they have. So we don't need to set a dollar or a drachma figure on it. Who is rich? Elsewhere, in the New Testament, God repeatedly rejects favoritism of all kinds, whether it's based on money or it's based on ethnic and racial discrimination. It's a couple of times God you know, writes about that. In Romans 2.11, Paul writes about that. God hates discrimination if it's based on religious leadership and background. That's in Galatians 2.6. 
God doesn't want favoritism, master among slaves. A couple of different verses, right? That So God hates that favoritism. God doesn't discriminate like that. Some of you are sports fans. I can see it in the baseball caps you're wearing. So we, have we had a tendency to tilt the playing field as umpires to call balls and strikes in favor of the people that look like me, are dressed like me, speak the same language I do. That's the kind of favoritism that James is writing about and saying, no, that has no place in the church. That's the negative. That's the harsh confrontation part. James 1.27, one of the verses we read, in fact, the very first of the verses that we read, instead of thinking so much about playing favorites and discriminating, instead, focus on what I, we can do to help. Because James writes, religion that God, our Father, accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. In the setting, context of what James will write in the very next chapter, being polluted by the world probably becomes, don't become materialistic. And probably also, don't focus on revenge. And he or she has what I want, and so I'm going to get it from them. What's the opposite of favoritism, of discrimination, of prejudice, whether it's based on color of skin or amount in my wallet? James writes it there in chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, when he talks about loving your neighbor. James 2, verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, Love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing right. All your neighbors. Because the opposite of favoritism of the rich, favoritism of your own in-group or the in-group you want to be, the opposite of favoritism is to love your neighbor. All your neighbors. All kinds and types of neighbors. This means we don't need to swing the pendulum all the way to the other end. There's a Bible verse that says, in even going all the way back to the Old Testament, do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Interact, so this is the explanation, interact with your neighbor for who they are, not for the externals, because who they are underneath is their child of God. The key verse, if I could pull out just one verse for this morning, even key phrase for this morning to pull out, is there in verse 13 of chapter 2. The key to James 2 is there in verse 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy wins. Forgive my Spanish. La compasión gana. Mercy wins. The compassion, the love, the care, that's what can banish all of the people that say greed is good and champagne tastes and caviar dreams and wanting to hoard for myself. 
mercy, compassion, caring. James calls it the royal law, to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus taught exactly about this. As a matter of fact, when the religious leadership wanted to throw Jesus a curveball, because the royal law, love God, love your neighbor, the religious leadership wanted to, to trip up Jesus and said, who is my neighbor? A leader came to him in Luke 10 and said, who is my neighbor? Maybe he could get out of it. Maybe here in New York City in the 24th century, we say, who's my neighbor? There's 8 million people. No, actually, in the greater New York area, there's 22 million people. Who's my neighbor? All 22 million of them? Well, this is how Jesus entered. He tells a story, as he often did. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came down to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... Someone that looked different, someone that worshipped different, someone that spoke a different language. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He had mercy on him. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Then Jesus says to the religious leadership, he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Love your neighbor. Jesus shows who your neighbor is. Loving your, not just geographic, physically sitting next to me neighbor, but any neighbor. The neighbor in the story wasn't specifically a widow or orphan as James himself writes about in James 1.27, when we were reading just a little while ago. The man in the story of the Good Samaritan was probably even maybe middle class or rich himself because he was traveling from you know, Jerusalem to Jericho. But at that moment, at that moment, bleeding out on the side of the road, that man was the least of these. You may have heard that phrase, least of these. It's borrowed from what Jesus teaches about in Matthew 25. When he talks about there are sheep and goats, two kinds of people. The kind of people who look out on the least of these. Those who are hungry and needy and strangers and orphans. And they have mercy on those least of these. And then there are the goats, the people who don't have mercy. 
Is he the least of these anybody that has suffered loss? Going back to James 127 one more time, widows and orphans, both in Jewish tradition and right now, those are people who have suffered loss, loss of a spouse, loss of a parent. So let's bring it up to date. How do we treat, love, act towards those that are widows and orphans? Maybe it's not literally a woman who has lost her spouse or a child without a parent, but in the sense of someone through divorce or abandonment that has lost, who do you know that has lost someone or something? Maybe like in the story that Jesus told, it's someone who has lost their health because they've been attacked, they're a victim of a crime, or they've lost their health from something like cancer or AIDS. Maybe they've lost something in the sense of they lost their job, or they've lost relationships because they've been cut off because of some action that they've taken. Those losses are every bit as real. Who do you know that's a single mom or a loveless child, even if in the eyes of the law they still have a parent, they're on their own? Who do you know that has lost human connection and relationship? They're disconnected and overlooked and shunned. Now, if you're moved by this in a society-wide government sense, movement sense, and that's your calling, you feel that's your calling from God, that's okay. But James and Jesus right now aren't necessarily writing about great mass movements or political causes or political parties. James says, someone came into your meeting, into your teaching service. Jesus said, you walked by somebody. They were that close that you could smell them. Who do you know? Who do you know that you've passed by? Maybe the reason they're unfortunate is because of choices they've made, choices they themselves have made. Mercy wins. Love wins. The compassion Ghana. That's what James is writing about. The opposite of favoritism isn't more favoritism or favoritism of someone else or pretending that I've never played favorites. The opposite of favoritism. What God calls us to is mercy. Compassion. As we close out this time of the service, I will do a reading. And as we often have done before here at uh, Every Day, during this time of reading, it's a reflection time for you. So if you uh, choose to, to close your eyes as your best way to reflect or, or to look uh, upward, take this moment 
to reflect as you're listening to these verses. What in these verses uh, changes, changes you? What, what strikes you? What arouses feelings in you that you didn't have before? Feelings and thoughts. What faces come to your mind as you listen to, these, to this wisdom from James? Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy. Santiago 1, 27 y 2, del 1 al 13. La religión pura y sin mancha delante de Dios nuestro Padre es esta. Atender al huérfano y a las viudas en su aflicción y conservar limpio de la corrupción del mundo. Hermanos míos, la fe que tienen en nuestro glorioso Señor Jesucristo no debe dar lugar a favoritismo. Supongamos que en el lugar donde se reúnen entre, entra un hombre con un anillo de oro y ropa elegante y entra también un pobre desarrapado. Si atienden bien al que lleva ropa elegante y le dice, siéntese aquí, en este lugar cómodo. Pero al pobre le dice, quédate allá, ahí a mi, de mi pie. Siéntese en el suelo a mis pies. ¿Acaso no hacen no hacen discriminación entre ustedes juzgando con malas intenciones Escuchen mis queridos hermanos No ha escogido Dios a los que son pobres según el mundo Para que sean ricos en la fe Y hereden el reino que prometió a quienes lo aman Pero si ustedes han menospreciado al, al pobre No son los ricos quienes lo explotan a ustedes Y lo arrastran de, ante los tribunales no son ellos los que blasfeman el buen nombre de aquel a quien ustedes pertenecen. Hacen bien 
si de veras cumplen la ley suprema de la escritura amen a tu prójimo como a ti mismo pero si muestran algún favoritismo pecan y son culpables pues la misma ley los acusa de ser transgresores porque el que cumple toda la ley pero falla en un solo punto ya es culpable de haberla quebrantado toda pues el que dijo no que cometes adulterio también dijo no matas no mates si no cometes adulterio pero matas ya has violado la ley hablen y pórtense como quienes han de ser juzgados por la ley que nos da libertad porque habrá un juicio sin compasión para el que actúe sin compasión la compasión triunfa en el juicio.